What is up, Asymmetry? We've been away for a while, and we missed you guys back in the house. Just did a quick kind of catch up with our notorious Juniper 3 class, um, a tremendous group of three gentlemen that have been at it for a very long time. And all three of these gentlemen played a role in the review of the Kung Fu albums and where we went into a deep dive about the historic evolution of several Japanese masterpieces. But now they're back and Danny Cox decided to bless us with his barbecue skills. We go through all kinds and manners of topics from barbecue to ceramics to artistic creation in general, but a tremendous group of gentlemen. Uh, we also had Mia in the studio, which was awesome. Uh, a ceramic artist whose work we admire. And uh, Lyman and I enjoyed it. It's great to be back into the podcast after the covered wagon. And we hope you guys enjoy as well. Would be like, here's the stage of the bones. I even go from your example. Have you ever seen anybody go? Here's a timeline from collected to the first styling to the vortex, separate stores, and the 50 to 100 to 500 to 2000. Mm, yeah. And actually have that sculpted by a wire guy or some something where it's, here's the exhibit of walking through the evolution of how to do bonsai you know you know that's interesting uh, you're talking about it from that perspective i i guess like when i think about what would it be like to be in charge of a collection mm -hmm. or a museum of sorts i think about what kind of what kind of um unforeseen aspects of bonsai would be confronted in terms of being a curator of a museum or a public collection as opposed to having carte blanche in my backyard mm -hmm. you know of bonsai marai like what is what changes about bonsai with that position mm -hmm. and obviously you don't know what you don't know till you know mm -hmm. and that seems like a position in bonsai in general but specifically in the western world that is really really under discussed underexplored and completely misunderstood within bonsai the idea of curatorship and I, I mean i've talked about it a lot recently in terms of having seen a lot of public collections and having sat down with uh lee and sam in australia and um obviously we've worked with Aaron at PBM a lot, and I have a tremendous amount of respect for that institution. And then sitting down with David Easterbrook yeah. um, and the curators of the Montreal, current curators of the Montreal Botanical Garden Bonsai and Pinging Collection. But <clears throat> you know, what would it what what would it be like to be in their shoes? Um, and and I think the the bigger concept to that is what would it be like to be in their shoes after having had such autonomy hmm. at Mirai, you know, to, to not to say I'm ever going to leave Mirai to go curate a public collection, right. but the, the thought, the thought process and the idea <clears throat> is very curious to me. And I think too, as bonsai continues to evolve, when you do look at other, when you do look at other creative industries, there are creative industries that pull, people from their own personal practice into a more public position in charge of, of more public uh, collections and institutions to pull on that creative power or, or potentially the community that's been generated around the, the knowledge or the, pro, the approach to the art form. 
that exists within that sort of community. And I could really see the Mirai community potentially being um, a positive contributor to a public collection at some point in time. I think that could be really interesting and really cool. I could see the... It's almost when you go back to the... It's the museum and the curation, but then there's also the the Ryan Neal, the Bonsai Mirai learning wing. Mm. The... Because you've done so much teaching, the aspect and the experience. Yeah. What's that? What's that all like? If you had endless money, be like, I'm going to walk you through bonsai right yeah. now. Here are the pots, like, and you have that international, like the learning center where you have. Then you have potters here, and you have this, and you like everyone comes together. But you're like, what is the pot like? What is that experience? What is going to those trees into different stages? And you're like, now I can teach at such a higher level because. I created these tools that are such great illustrations. Yeah, I, gosh, I look at a museum and and uh, and don't feel the immediate response in my mind is not to teach. Well, there's a museum, there's that or a collection, but then there's also the learning part of a museum. And like when we were kids, to- totally, totally interchanging. And, and I think it's like what. I I do believe the purpose of museums is to educate um, or expose or build people yeah. who appreciate the 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 pieces that you're showing, and this is probably the backbone. Probably, let's take the word museum out then, and just say the learning center. Yeah, the I, campus. I, the thing that is sexy to me about museums is that museums typically hold art. Mm-hmm. I guess that's why I think it's interesting. And and I associate museum, the term museum, with innovative architecture that explores the context in which that art is displayed and have, shown. And that is what appeals to me. So you have the museum then, and then the learning wing is right next door. Yeah, I don't want anything to do with the learning wing. Like, <laughs> you, not but I because, would like to not, see you create because, the learning wing. Oh, because I see what you're saying. That's what I'm saying. Like... In that I regard. was thinking about all the super sexy displays and uh, you know unlimited budget that we could build out the best, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> the yeah. best architecture. Well, well, if you think of like a natural history museum, that's very educational, along with being a museum. Yeah, so bonsai could be somewhere mm-hmm. in that space in between there. Where I mean, I think in my experience, just docenting bonsai shows that our club has put on and talking to people, I can see a lot of the public being really interested in going from you know panel to panel or whatever and exploring on their own. Oh, that's how you do it. And the questions maybe they were embarrassed to ask or something, and yeah. having the information there, going here's an example of you know how we would you know bend a branch or something. Well, I mean, I think it's it's such a weird thing to to try to tap into. How do you get people into bonsai? Does does walking them through the nuts and bolts create the link that allows them to connect? And when <clears throat> I think every, every person is going to have that different touch point. So I think you've got to cro- probably cross all those bridges. Again, I'm speaking from a complete level of ignorance here, right? But the I think the thing that motivates would motivate me about taking on some sort of uh, conceptual scope of work about that would be the other touch point, which is putting trees in a context that they've never been viewed before and allowing people to expand the way that they see and take in and interpret the, the art form of representing nature in miniature. 
And that's really where I think you get into probably some of the architectural opportunities and contextual abilities to communicate. And when you think about the Met or the Louvre or um, any of the great art institutions, the context of the space is as important as the art that sits in it. Yeah. And that, that little piece of it for bonsai and context in general to have a clear concept of what you're communicating with these tiny trees and the context that you present that. I mean, I, I think the Pacific Bonsai Museum is a great example of an intentionally designed architectural space with a very modern concept about bonsai. And it is, in my mind, the most effective communication tool. If you go to the Alcobendas Museum in Madrid that Luis Vallejo designed to house his bonsai collection, it too, I mean, the architecture and contextually the space is just, and his is, is I think even more on that art centric level because he is such a talented architect and designer. It just changes your an experience. Yeah, it's an experience. And I think there's even, I think there's probably even more abstract ways to think about it. And that really, I, I, I find that to be super interesting, but I also find it super interesting just to be in connection with plants that have provenance and to have to wrestle with when do you mm-hmm. when do you change them when do you address that and to have to explore that consistently as a daily thought process um i think that would i think that would have a very major impact on how we because here we're making trees at Mirai constantly we do have historical trees that i think very hard about how we work on them when we work on them and a lot of historical trees coming in from the outside that we have a brief moment with that tree and need to be respectful of the history that exists around it the john naka piece the katsumi kenosha you know all, all of these and so you have you have that moment with it but existing with it on the daily as as a maybe a greater role in, in the decision making around that tree is is of interest to me is of interest to me yeah that's fascinating in the there's the museum aspect there's a learning wing and then i just popped in of like the accessibility yeah how do you get pop bonsai more popular more people into it and success like this place is amazing but not everyone can come here very few people the minuscule percentage that get to come here mm-hmm. whereas if you were given a museum if you were given that if you had that museum and you were making those changes to a famous piece i would promote the heck out of it mm. but like this is happening watch this happen yeah yeah. Like yeah, there's there's a huge opportunity around that, right? Well, right. and I mean, this is the thing though. I'm glad that you said that cuz traveling to all the public collections across the world, anywhere where bonsai is growing, there is positivity and progress in a public collection. Mhm. And I've never looked at bonsai I, <clears throat> when I initially looked at bonsai, I looked at bonsai is there's progress in a professional's operation growing. That's what I thought it, that's what I thought it was. That was my misunderstanding of the situation, but there is progress and positivity around a public collection anywhere where bonsai is thriving right now, which is directly correlated to learning, right? You get getting that club and you're teaching people an interest. Accessibility. Yep. It's directly correlated with this accessibility and one of the things about Montreal, I mean, David Easterbrook 
very seamlessly dovetailed the accessibility into a club that offered the opportunity to learn with a structure that grew Mm -hmm. newly exposed people through the art form and gave them the tools to be able to engage with it. I mean, this compatibility with the club and the public collection and, and, and having seen that, I mean, BSOP does a lot of the progressive things that Montreal did, whether they know they were influenced by Montreal or not, I don't know. And whether that came directly or circuitously for, via some other channel, I have no idea. But there are a lot of uh, very positive progressive similarities in the way that BSOP and the Montreal um, Bonsai Club grow their membership in terms of educational systems and structure, et cetera. But when I when you start to look at what Ted Matson's doing down at the Huntington, and you have this very um, well spoken curator who's extremely enthusiastic and very very inviting, come be a part of this, come on. And he's teaching the his bonsai gako classes to people that get exposure at the Huntington. They sign up for classes at the Huntington, and he he kind of creates the foundation and then you get to continue your journey by working on the Huntington collection and his army of volunteers groweth rapidly. I mean it's a it is becoming a a very large group of people that are passionate about bonsai and he's cultivating a lot of that and 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 whether that came first whether that's the chicken or that's the egg there is a new vitality in southern California just a, a kind of across the board, a new vitality in Southern California mm-hmm. that that ha- I haven't, having worked there on and off for the past 10 years, I haven't necessarily seen. I mean, it's been kind of recovering and building since John Naka's passing, and there have been a lot of very iconic personalities that are no longer with us, Harry and Ben and, and uh, Bruce, and but the enthusiasm that's there now, and I think the motivation that is there now is is very much dovetailing with the rise of the Huntington's collection again. Yeah. So so Ted's taking like beginning students there, teaching them and bringing them into the volunteer work. Yeah. That, so so their exposure, they can sign up for his his classes. He created a curriculum where he introduces them, I think, to a very broad spectrum of knowledge. And then he pulls them in and spends a lot of time helping them build their skills. And the people that you put in the effort and start to develop re- relatively um, applicable skills, he then starts to give them scopes of work in the collection. Mm-hmm. And that is what gets the work done for the oh, Huntington. I, I just assume there are people that are already doing bonsai. That no, just not necessarily. To, okay. Well, a, that's, lot that's of, cool. a lot of the people that whenever I'm down there working, a lot of the people that come are people that, that Ted has been cultivating as students. Mm -hmm. I mean, what an incredible marriage of the institution taking the exposure and, and capturing that spark and really tending to that spark and building a fire. I mean, it's like, it's pretty brilliant. That's how you create a bonsai ninja. That's how, well, I, th- I think that's right? one way. I think that's, I think that's the way that a public collection with the greatest amount of exposure creates a bonsai ninja. And then you rising tide and you will find the ninjas in that group. In yeah. The, yeah. Well, areas. I, I yeah. think that you will find the people that want to go to ninja school. How's that? <laughs> yeah. Right. Because right. 
Ted is managing a lot of people in a big collection and he's conceptualizing exhibitions and all of the things that a curator does. And this is where I'm saying, I don't know what it's like to be a curator. So it's hard to, it's, it's hard to be able to appreciate the full scope of what curators do. But I think when you look at what is the role of a bonsai professional over the course of the past 10 years, my notion of that has changed a lot. Because originally it was like, okay, a, a bonsai professional is more or less, it felt to me coming back from Japan void of the demand for a lot of, of the really talented people's work that's being produced. You, you take the raw material and you support the growers and the collectors that are doing it well. You go find the ceramicists that are producing good work, support them and help them create, give them the financial backing to create the best work they can, which opens the door to other clientele, people seeing that high level of, of their work and abilities, find the stand makers, put the compositions together, educate the people. And, and all of a sudden you kind of have the full scope, right? As a, as a bonsai professional. But I think where we're growing into, because the ceramic community has a strong back uh, foothold and ceramicists who are talented do have the ability to put their work out there now and have people buy it so it's not as risky to go make those really expensive containers or show your best foot forward and stand makers are, are necessary now because exhibitions the quality is rising mm -hmm. and there are collectors that are established with reputations doing very well uh, and growers who are I think highly uh, promoted and people are aware of the fact that there are people growing great stuff now all of a sudden there are those trees that exist out there that are maybe outside of the realm of workability for a large majority of people and, and professionals are being leaned on more and more for these pieces that are being created as raw material, needing to be repotted into these ceramics, needing to be prepared for these exhibitions. And, and that's really exciting because I think that's a maturation of, the, of our community in the Western world. Um, and I think there's, I think there's room for more. I think, I think professionals probably at some point, depending on what the motivation is, should, ex should explore more context or push, push those concepts further to continue evolving themselves. But that's, that, that's where I sort of have my right. own perception of what I would like to do. No, it's interesting because we talked about yesterday of where did the, how do those best athletes come from this area, that area, accessibility, you know, it's like. You can't have the best bonsai artists if you don't know about bonsai. Yeah. Right? And it's just like more and more people open your backyards. I've seen so many people who have great trees, but nobody knows it. Yeah. And you're just like, oh, let yeah. people into your backyard. It's not a public collection, but it's like your collection at home. Let, is if there's an enthusiast, like whatever that is, like have the little bonsai club. Start that thing at high, that high school mm. students. You've got the trees in your backyard, like... I have I let people from our club come over to the house. I'm like, hey, I literally say, the wife is out of town. Alert! I can do bonsai this weekend. <laughs> I'm allowed, and then I'm like, anybody want to come over? Clean trees? Like, let's learn a skill. What do you want to learn today? Let's do this. And that's a good idea, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that like because they can't invest in the trees yet. They're, yeah. they're not there at that point. Mm. But how do you get them to put, be able to put their hands on things? Yeah, yeah. Break that ice. Get mm -hmm. them into it. Yeah, I mean, you don't want to let too people, too many people into your yard. That could be a security issue after some time. But if yeah. they're, you know, I'm them trusting. in there and they're interested, and they and, and you're you're teaching them things, you know, that's that's kind of a different story, and you want to uh, pass that on and 
Um, yeah. yeah, but I mean, I, the, all that's going on, and then you have like you know, like we were talking, like CBS, uh, California Bonsai Society, bringing in artists and stuff at the same time, and there's this spark, and the you know, this is going on in these different areas of Southern California. You have the population; um, a lot of people are are more interested in nature these days. A lot of more bonsai potters showing up because there's places all over the place where you can learn how to do ceramics. Um, we probably need more stand makers because not as many people do woodworking, but um, I think it's uh, there's a lot of untapped potential out there. Uh, I think, yeah, I think it's just just starting. I think the growth is just starting. This is where this is where I think the next conceptualization of education is necessary because now as a professional trying to, if you have somebody who's been exposed by a public institution and, and has gotten their foot in the door via the structure of a club that's really thinking about growing its members or a curator who's creating a system to have a team, there mm -hmm. still is a system and a structure to gain that foundation of the full scope of knowledge that allows you to then jump off into exploration and bonsai. You have to have, all of the dots have to connect in one system of knowledge. I firmly, firmly believe that. And it comes back to practicing bonsai, studying with five different teachers and reading every bonsai today. And you can get so cattywampus in your thoughts about bonsai that you're doing something from one magazine and, oh shit, this one says something else. I'll go back and, you know, and pretty soon this tree is just like, what's happening? <laughs> and it's, it's really devastating. So I think you know, you, the, the, the educational role of a professional then becomes creating that system and educating those people to, to be able to, you know, move through the gears of their capacity in bonsai first, second, third, fourth, fifth. I don't know that anybody's hitting sixth gear yet. And I think it's a limitation of how we've conceptualized instructing people in bonsai. And at least this is what I've, this is where I'm saying at Mirai, I think the goal is to create bonsai ninjas Mm -hmm. At least that's my goal, to create bonsai ninjas <laughs> and having exposure to some different modalities and, and structures of teaching. I think there's still a better way. And, and really, when you think about it, if you go back and you think about how education has changed, the original educational system was workshops and, and demonstrations, attending a professional, teaching a workshop or a demonstration. There's all kinds of box elder bugs on the outside of the building that bird, the birds are just... Is that what that noise they're is? They're just machine gun <laughs> mowing them down right now. There's like oh. birds all over the outside. That's when I was like, what is that yeah. noise about Yeah, us? We're being attacked. <laughs> <laughs> but you, yeah, but you had the traveling professional, the workshop and, and the demo. And then I think you saw Eldorado Bonsai was the first bonsai school. At least that's what they said. And up, as far as I knew, I think they were... I think they were being very true about that. You sat down, you got a lecture, you got a lecture, you got to work, you sort of had this consistency and this uh, approach of the teacher. And Tatamori Gondo was teaching Satsuki, Kathy Shaner was teaching a variety of courses, and then Boone started his seasonals. Mm -hmm. And that, I mean, Boone's seasonal structure became, I think, the the first really well thought out, well formed system of education in North America. I, I, well, let me say in the United States for sure, because I didn't, I don't know what was happening in Canada, etc. And it would be wrong to 
discredit them for sure based based on what I learned in Montreal but you know and so I teach a a version of Boone's system in terms of the structure of the courses mine are species specific mm -hmm. you know Michael Hagedorn teaches a version of them he went he was one of Boone's first students mm -hmm. and you kind of see that system occurring and it's been very, very positive, very well thought out, very, I think, um, you know, each instructor obviously adds their nuances, but there are limitations to it. And if you want bonsai ninjas, killers in the art form, you know, like people really pushing the boundaries, it does take, it does take something a little bit different in, in my mind from my experiences. Well, it's interesting breaking it down you said caddy wampus you know like getting all this information and you're trying 18 different techniques on a tree yeah but and i think this is what the essence of mariah is to me and i think it's the essence of almost any pursuit of anything of whether you're trying to accomplish something at work or be the best person here or that it is the question of what are you trying to accomplish mm. like that's the mantra yeah right if you make that cut, what are you trying? Like, do you want to win? So nothing's wrong. Your choice isn't wrong if that's what you want to totally. accomplish. Yeah. But just ask that question first and then go. Yeah. But if you don't do that, it's like, oh, I want to I'm, I want to advertise like this. Well, what are you trying to accomplish? Who what, who are you trying to reach? Yeah, who are you trying to reach? Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, then that's the wrong choice if that's what you're trying to accomplish. Totally. And so that question alone, I think that's the, the essence that I, for me coming here i've seen so many other clubs on the east coast where i came from from dc where no one asked you like you can't do that that's no you're not supposed to do that and the, like what are you trying to do mm -hmm. and then no but no one was asking that yeah they were just like this is the hard and fast rule I'm like well that doesn't make sense if you're trying to do this yeah yeah i think that break broken down you've allowed people to the ability to ask that question and then answer it and go, oh, now I can be an artist because I want to accomplish this. And you're like, great. Yeah. Go down that, go down that alley. Deliberate and intentional. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Deliberate and intentional, but having intention, mm -hmm. understanding the clarity of the intention, I think is important. We, we've, we've been working super hard on the apical formation stream and it literally has driven me crazy for about three years. <laughs> I mean, because I knew it had to happen. Apexes are the hardest thing for people to understand. How do you make an apex? Nobody really... I mean, like, it's, it is the most challenging. Yes. Mm. But even with your apex, <laughs> as you continue with that thought, is going. that brings me back to the museum and the learning wing and, like, Ryan Neal's... Like, imagine what you could do. It's taken you three years, but it's the thought process. But mm. imagine if you had the museum's capability, like, how you want to teach take any technique we will make it work and we will go down that road of like think of the tools of like oh i can explore how to tell the educate better yeah yeah i, I mean I, I mean i don't i don't mm, i don't know i don't know i think i i still think t i would i would lean heavily on tech to educate so you would or would not so i would yeah. you know a museum would give you a lot of exposure but but just to, just to come back to the apical thing right yeah when you ask anybody what What's the hardest thing is like apexes. And I'm thinking, yeah, I feel that. I've 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 been there for sure. 
go to Japan, take 500 pictures of apexes, my first visit to Japan, like I was seriously like, what is this all about? I got to figure this out. That's what I'm going to focus on. But then going through my apprenticeship, the apical region was always like you get up to the apical region and you're just like, ah, shit, I'm here again. Hmm. Typically, that was when Mr. Kimura would come unhinged the most is when you would completely (laughs) abuse an apex. And it and it and it took time, but it was never like laid out in any kind of structure. There was no system to an apical mm-hmm. formation, and that was where coming back, we're so aware of what we do in bonsai from the action, but a lot of times we don't question or ask or understand what we do, which comes back to what are we trying to accomplish? Right, right. We just accept this is what we do. It's been fascinating to dig into apical formation from a perspective of I make apical apical decisions on every tree that I style, but I don't even think about it. I don't think I don't think about it. So then coming back and trying to explain making an apex. Yeah, I was gonna say, do you think this putting this together, this this um, video on apexes, apices, that was it an exercise for you? To learn how to quantify it and and be totally. able to break it down, and totally. then you go, okay, now I know what I'm doing without thinking about it. Now I can actually think about it and go through the steps and put this together. Absolutely, absolutely. Because if you don't, and I'm very fortunate to have studied with Mr. Kamura when I did, because Mr. Kamura, when I started my apprenticeship, was still very much in the era of his work where he was using every piece of the tree to tell the story. And the last piece of the tree to tell the story is the apex. It completes. It's like it's like putting the final paragraph that ties the whole book together. Hmm. And if you don't use that tool, you build up this story and then you're just left with, what, that's it? That's what, what you could have done so much. You know, it's like... I'm sure everybody. I didn't. I didn't watch a Game of Thrones. Like I, I wouldn't do that to myself because I got really <laughs> deep into Lost what? when Lost was a series way back when, and I was just devastated by the finality of Lost. Did you guys watch Lost? <laughs> I loved it. I think I didn't see the last episode because at that point I was lost. So it was like, <laughs> it, I, and just, and just I, like I, I couldn't care anymore. Destitute out on you know out <laughs> I, in the middle I of nowhere, it. just like what. What happened to this magnificent storyline that you guys managed to create and then totally destroy? Yeah. Uh, Okay, so very dramatic, but when you get to the apex of a tree, if you just dump a green dome on top of it and call it good, you're out in the middle of nowhere just going, what happened to this beautiful story that was being told? Mm -hmm. And, And so Mr. Kramura not saying that he doesn't still do that in his work, but you do see a lot more symmetry in his apical formation now, at least from the limited exposure to his work that I have. And I really am fortunate to have been there when he was pushing us very hard to utilize the apex to its maximum capacity. And that, that understanding that and how you create the foundation for that and how you expand that and then how you maximize and refine that Knowing that process, I never thought about teaching apical formation from creating the first, very first bones, defining the line of the tree base to tip. How does that start the build of the apex, the expansion of the foyer mass, and now utilizing that growth to further clarify and really give rise to 
a more defined apical region, and then moving into how do you handle the complexity of all of those branches and use them in a really sustainable way in terms of their organization at the peak of the tree to not create that symmetrical round dome, but actually build something that completes the story and doesn't leave you destitute in the middle of nowhere. Well, I think people would have to know that that means something on the tree. Cause I think you probably have a lot of people that are starting off in bonsai or they enjoy bonsai. They've been doing it. Maybe just think that's how you end and the composition and not be thinking, well, wait, this changes the story. This, yeah. this means something if the, if it looks like this, as opposed to yep. some other shape. Yep. So that part of the education I think is what is it, what does it actually mean when you do that? You can change the story by changing that. Yeah. And uh, that'd be a critical part. Well, and this is where, I think this is where it's been such an exercise in trying to create the cadence and the organization to educating at Mirai. Because even in terms of Mirai Live, like the first year of Mirai Live was really structure. The second year was a lot more secondary. This third year has been putting a lot of tertiary points on the educational <clears throat> tree of knowledge, if you will. <clears throat> right? But then yeah. you start to think, I'm thinking in 2017, I want to do an apical formation stream. This is going to be incredibly complex to do. And if you don't prime people for all of the components of design, then the apex, they don't even know, there's, there's no context to focus on this apical region. So the first really big effort was the design stream mm -hmm. to show people the components that we tell the story with. Right. And now being able to break down that really complex component of the apex is the second step. Once the apex has been dispelled, the third step is going back to the defining branch. Because once you remove the mystery around the apical region, the most complicated portion of the tree is actually really forming all of that style and uh, consistency of the material that you represent through the styling of the foliage mass as it's created in that branch that carries with it the guide, po the guide, guide post for every other branch on the tree. You know, I think the defining branch is your most difficult challenge in every tree, personally. But eight, but I've gone through the process of learning apical formation and really refine my notion of it so I can say that without the apical region being a limitation. Right. Yeah, like Kip and I were talking earlier this morning before we started about just, just getting the, uh, the structural branching, the first main lines done and how things will fall into place better after mm -hmm. that. But that's the hard part is, is um, you know, making those decisions and getting that ideal, ideal shape going. And then you can follow through after that. And I think, I think what's tough, what's really tough about setting structure in a tree is there is no one entry point for that mm -hmm. decision. You know, like we've talked about, okay, there's a, uh, a masculine feminine or that gradient of masculine feminine design as an interpretation point of how you enter the the decision making process right have these characteristics in the material this is how we can interpret taking action on the tree there's a natural versus may, maybe a representation of a tree in nature versus a rep representation of uh, of the bonsai form which can be an entry point into that design process. There's a, a young piece of material versus an older piece of material versus an ancient piece of material can be an entry point mm -hmm. into that process. And so when you start to talk about setting that structure, you can enter that at, at any of those points as a jumping off concept to build upon. 
And being able to utilize each of those seamlessly means you have to have a very big, wide perspective of bonsai. You've got to be seeing the wider, greater picture in the structural setting. Because if you go into the minutia of your secondary tertiary wiring without having seen the greater picture and perspective, you're already set up for failure. Yeah. I'd have to say the discussion on masculine versus feminine was very helpful to me because you see that in the books starting out early on and you see, you know, people talk about it and it just kind of seemed like, I guess I didn't really get it. It seemed like some antiquated way to put some, I don't know, maybe anthropomorphizing on trees or something or like, why why does that have to be a a feminine tree? Why is it, what's female? And it's like, oh, that's a context that I can make all my decisions in. Yeah, It's not really about male or female. It's just, these are the lines we're dealing with. Yeah. And that, that helped me a lot is to get past that point and go, okay, this is very useful. I think, I think maybe masculine, feminine, it's, it's like the first rudimentary, first rudimentary way to try and like quantify all the things and put them into a verbal form. And, and there may be a better way to describe it that we evolved to, you know, cause it's like powerful versus delicate let's see but delicate can be very powerful yeah absolutely exactly (laughs) so yeah you get mixed up in the words yeah exactly so that so it's it's very challenging but yeah i think i think that's a i think that's a monster and i think even when you talk about moving into a much more true to form obviously an abstraction but representation of a larger tree in miniature the the thing that you start to skew are the design concepts that apply to the more traditional or accepted approach to the bonsai form. And I think the next great leap in bonsai design potentially could, could come from the concept of manipulating proportion. I mean, I think proportion is what gave rise to a more natural representation of redwoods. Mm-hmm. I think proportion is probably what breaks down the ability for a lot of trees to represent that more natural form, just that. And proportion is the piece that is always being lost by the continual perpetuation of growth because the proportion continues to change and shift. And if we don't understand how to manage that proportion or how to regain that proportion or how to initially establish that proportion, then bonsai as a long-term approach cannot maintain its visual value. And that becomes of paramount importance. And this dovetails into the formation of the apex, because if you initially create an apex that is out of proportion to the tree already, try to drive that apex to a point of completion when it is not ready for that, then you've already set the stage for failure just much more rapidly and you're going to have to go back to the beginning to fix it. But if you understand when you approach a piece of material, the methodology to developing an apex in the first stage of that structural setting and expanding it in the secondary and refining it in the tertiary, you don't ever have to worry about setting yourself back. And having being able to relinquish the fear of, am I doing this correctly? Am I doing something that's going to screw this tree up? Am I going to be creating... You know, am, am I, am I, am I, is this okay to be able to be like, no, this is all right. I know this because I understand what comes next. I understand what comes last. I know the journey to get between all of those steps. We cool. Let's rock. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, because as Mike and I were discussing this morning, it would behoove me <clears throat> to talk about structural, not talk, work on structural wiring, all the trees that I brought, just go through. We're like, we're just going to set structure on every single one because we set structure and you're like, got it. Awesome. And then I, oh wait, I'm going to spend the next, for me, six to eight hours doing the secondary and tertiary mm-hmm. and doing that. And you're like, all right, structure again. And you're like, ah, but I'm like, if I could just crank out structure, structure, structure. I would caution you with that. I think that it sounds beautiful to do that, right? I'm going to work on structural wire. <clears throat> so I'm going to set structure on 10 trees. Mm-hmm. Okay. Here's the problem. When you set structure... You don't know if you've done a good job or a bad job until you've organized all the secondary tertiary branches and you can come back and you can look at that structure and you can see that the decisions that you made were in fact positive or negative. Because the structure doesn't show you the finished form of the tree, it just shows you the primary lines of the tree Mm -hmm. that you build the finished form around. Right. So the way that you discover that you've done a good job with your structure is when you end up with that asymmetrical design that communicates the design feel you wanted to execute in that tree. And that only comes with organization. Now that, I agree with that. and But then I'm we're in the context of where I'm at Mirai right now, uh-huh. right? Where it's, I at home, I would not just go do 10 structural things, but yeah. I'm like, I'm here, I'm trying to utilize my time in front of you. Mm. Structure, like, how do we feel in that one? How do we feel in that one? Great. I'm comfortable going home in secondary, tertiary, like, okay, that's all that stuff. But here, how can I best get that repetition in front of an expert and then work on that? And then I'm like, all right, great. Now I've got, now I got secondary and tertiary stuff. I can do all day long, like hunt, Lauren's out of town. Great. Let's, let's just all wire the stuff, right? <laughs> I've got things to do. I'm batching it. Time to wire. That's right. <laughs> but that but the so most- here. The most unsexy <laughs> existence, but I totally feel you. I'm in it. So that's I'm where it. it was like, I've got you in front of me. I would love to just focus on the structure and the structure and the structure and the structure. Great. Now I can go home. It's like, because it's not, it's a product of, I got to set, if, if things go the right way, I will have set structure on three pieces in three days. And that repetition, and, and I, told Mike this morning, like, and last night, structure, I feel, is my weakest point right now. It's everybody's weakest point. Right. It's hard. It's hard. And it, so that's why I was like, can I get that? I just want a little more repetition, like, I feel, feel more confident. Mia, you don't, you don't mind if I do secondary and tertiary wiring while, at, while you're at home, do you? Or do you have to leave town? <laughs> <laughs> I, I let you do your thing on the weekends, as long as I know you're in the backyard. I appreciate that. Lauren, do, please listen Do you to have any podcast. desire to do bonsai, Mia? Um... No, sorry. <laughs> you can look at them whenever I, you want. <laughs> I appreciate the amount of time and um, dedication it takes, uh-huh. but I don't think I have that kind of patience. And I can't, I definitely can't see things, you know, 50 steps ahead. Yeah. That I don't, artistically, I don't work that way. I don't think my mind doesn't work that way. So I find it very difficult to look at the trees that Mike brings home from the nursery or wherever and he's like do you see it do you see it and i'm like sure maybe i don't know i it look, looks like it could be it something. could be something like the the two trees he brought mm-hmm. um up here this weekend i mean to me they just look like he dug he, you know he went somewhere and he dug them out of the earth and 
There's <laughs> <laughs> that's as far as we've got. That's as far as I can them. see. Well, one of them is still in that state. We'll address that later today. But yeah, the other one, the d- design, I mean, I didn't see that coming. I look at that tree every day for five years or right. s- something, and, and it's like, oh, okay. It's, it's all together now. With the- well, it's definite for Lauren as well, where, and I think this is where Bonsai artists shoot themselves in the foot and appreciation and open it and getting more popular is that if you don't take that before picture to say like, oh, this is really great. And then I show her the before picture, she go, then her appreciation skyrockets. Mm. Absolutely. That's, that, like, that's very wow, important. Wow, that's amazing. Prior, she's like, that's really cool. Mm-hmm. Because before people start, you start talking to people about it, they, you know, a lot of the public thinks that, oh, that's just how the tree grew. That's just, that's how you got it. Oh, how nice you, you bought that. It's like, no, no, you don't understand what went into this. Mm-hmm. And, and then maybe they glaze over at that point. But to show the pictures, like what you're talking about, the idea of a museum where you're showing like the succession of things or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's really, this is something you do to a tree. It's just not something you you get and put on a shelf. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, yeah, that brings us back to the whole, you know, access to education discussion and all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh well, yeah. I think it, I think it brings you back to the notion that the journey is more valuable than the, than whatever product you know you're yeah, seeing. Yeah, yeah. But I wanted to come back because you said your uh, artistic approach it, it kind of doesn't work that way for you. How how does your creativity and artistic because you're a ceramicist as as well, or at least you dabble in ceramics dabble. as a medium? Yeah. Um, I think it's more. I I have a hard time with intention. Or starting with intention. And maybe that's where I go awry. Um, I kind of go by feel mm. and present moment experiencing, mm-hmm. I guess. Sometimes, more, but honestly, my more successful stuff has been when I've started with an intention. So, Gotcha. <laughs> hmm. um, I think that's something that has to be cultivated. And a lot of people, uh, I don't think these days in this era of instant gratification. I don't think people know it's not, it's, it's something we're alienated to, even though it's something that's probably very innate. We just have lost the ability to start with a focus or start with an intention and see that it's going to take time and commitment and um, dedication to Mm -hmm. get to a certain point that you want to get to instead of thinking you know, you're popping out of Zeus's head as Athena, fully formed when you're born, kind of thing. Right. So, I really like the juxtaposition of, um, you know, there's always that that discussion of, um, hey, Danny, <laughs> wakey, wakey. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Thank you for cast. being prompt to the coffee cast this morning. <laughs> Actually, Danny earned. Uh, uh, Danny definitely earned a late morning because he barbecued his butt off yesterday absolutely and yeah it was awesome you there's two vegetarians sitting here that that cheated on our diet last night to That's try right. some comp- competitive level barbecuing and <laughs> yes. it's very good yes Epic. i'm still digesting anyone who's going to be in pines too next year just you wait <laughs> danny <laughs> will be like there and i will be there eating that was yeah. tremendous <laughs> Tremendous. Best, I had best beans yeah. I've ever had in my entire life. I woke up with barbecue sauce bleeding out my pores. <laughs> <laughs> Mission accomplished. Yeah, there we did. We did it. We did it. Mike, you were saying uh, the juxtaposition is interesting. Oh, yeah, because playing with clay is like one of the most ancient human things to do. And I, and I love that about it. 
when I when I do when I demonstrate at the the Orange County Fair and it's time for me to narrate, I, I usually go there when I'm up there, kind of riffing on the subject, and I'm like, this is a very human thing to do. They, you know, the, the oldest things they found, you know, often are, are pottery, and then you know the remnants of what was was made in them, and da 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 da. But um, I just try to tap into to that with people because a lot of times people will get into ceramics because they went to the fair and they went to go sit down in the shade somewhere and relax amongst all the noise, and they're watching us. And a lot of people have signed up for classes because they saw that. And um, you know it's the same kind of spark you have to hit with teaching bonsai. I think mm. is they see people doing it, they see the result, and they're like. I think I want to do that, you know, and mm-hmm. it dis- demystifies. I think, yeah, because people see the end product, and like you said, they don't know all that goes into it, and sometimes it can be intimidating to think like how much actually went into that product. But I think watching the process can help. Yeah, and one thing I always tell people is, you know, they get a lot of people they they look at something you make and they go, oh well, I, I can't do that. I don't have any talent, and um, it, it doesn't take talent to learn how to make something. It takes repetition and the desire to do it. I think the talent comes from yeah. well, when you have those skills, what can you do with it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But to be able to throw a pot, you have to learn how to center. You have to learn how to pull up the walls and keep it centered, and you make shapes. Um, you know, that's not a talent that's, you know, putting a, you know, a hammer on a nail or something it, and ultimately, and, you know, you do it enough times and, and it's, and it, things kind of fall into place, but then you have all these very individual um, results, but, um, you know, just to get people to use their hands and start doing these things and realizing it's not some obscure thing, you know, yeah. it's, it takes, you know, a desire to want to do it and put the time in and repeat things and, yeah. and, and you, you can, anybody could do it really. When uh, we were walking through the garden and you were looking at a container that was, I think, made by Ron and, oh, the um, the lab prototype container okay, made by Ron and you were like, wow, that's really square. Like his slab building skills yeah. are, are pretty uh, next level. Yeah. I, I've, I understand clay has memory. Mm-hmm. But can you break that down for me a little bit? Like, wh- where does that memory come from, and why is clay? How how does that work? Because you just you have a combination of a lot of small particles that make this yeah. muddy mass. Um, I'm sure there's probably somebody listening who do a better job than this explaining it. But it's almost like wood moves based on moisture, and it can warp. And I think you have a very similar thing happening there. Uh-huh. Um, if you really, um, if you compress clay into a shape and then like you 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 bump it, um, it it's going to try to move back a little bit. Um, and so you're you're always kind of working with compression and managing the moisture and things like that. So it's it's difficult to do very straight lines and right angles and and slab build like that because the clay wants to do everything but what you want it to do. Uh huh. You know, and so you have to manage. The moisture level, you know, is it in the in the soft leather hard stage or the middle leather hard stage? You know, that kind of a thing. Is this the is this the right timing to? I guess it's kind of like bonsai. You kind of hit the iron when it's hot. Yep. Is, is this the right time to make this move? Yep. You know, and then let it let it set in. Um, and so you you know you're you're doing there's stages along the way as as it matures, I guess, where you would um you would make those decisions, and that's all part of that that journey of learning things and getting the feel for it, you know. I watched a video on YouTube. It's like a 30-minute clip of uh, Gyozan, who's probably the most prominent current Japanese ceramicist for bonsai pots. Um, 
that's living at this moment in time. And he's really, he's really cr- crossed a lot of boundaries in Japan as a bonsai ceramicist because m- I would say a large number of the bonsai ceramicists only become highly respected or appreciated once they've uh, passed away. Which is just like the weirdest thing about <laughs> art in general. It's like, yeah. oh, they're dead. Now there's shit's awesome. And it's like, well, you know, it looked the same when they were alive. Yeah. So it's almost like we're going to get no more work, of this. You know? <laughs> you know, let's pay more attention now because there's not going to be any more. Yeah. Know? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, Yuzon, one of the, one of the most talented, innovative, still people cannot duplicate his woodworking skills in terms of making the stand. And I mean, some of the stuff he did with inlays of different types of wood that shrink swell at a different rate, and yet they exist together in this magical, very, very tiny tolerance together. Mm-hmm. How, how was he able to accomplish these things? He was dirt poor when he died and now his stands sell for hundreds of thousands of dollars and it's just like what is is this all about like the classic situation yeah the classic situation (laughs) anyways i digress watching uh gyozan make a a lotus shaped pot which is all which uh he he slab built this lotus shaped pot that's crazy and it's like a 30 minute clip just he doesn't say anything there's like this little like uh little little bit of music in the background but for the most part if i just turned off the music just just it was just like 30 minutes of silence watching this dude (laughs) slab build a pot and uh it was pretty fascinating to watch his process seeing seeing all of the issues that you know around slab building in a bonsai container and watching somebody that just has done it a thousands Mm -hmm. of times do it so effortlessly Mm -hmm. but also effortlessly from the perspective of he didn't royally screw it up but it took a lot of work took a lot of work to get to that final product yeah yeah it's like when you're you're sitting there making a pot and someone says how how many how how long did it take you to make that um you know 15 years you know right and they kind of laugh and you're like well that's what it took to get to this point yeah you know and that's you know that's where the value and the time comes in but do you work? Do you work with stuff besides clay in terms of uh, art, creativity? Uh, I mean, bonsai, obviously, but are there other mediums? Not really. Those are the main things. I mean, I've dabbled with wood a little bit. I took a furniture making class at the community college. Um, made this bench that I that I that I love. That is really nice. Um, but other than that, it's if I'm. I'm trying to get creative with my shelf building for my bonsai. Mm-hmm. And that's really um, it. But I guess also, I mean, gardening and general gardening is its, its own sort of palette um, and, and canvas, right? And my, um, I, I've, you know, once I bought my house, I was like, okay, the, the front yard, is, that's going to be, I'm going to design this whole native garden out there. And then the backyard, um, it's, um, you know, there's vegetable gardens and they, and then they kind of bleed into the bonsai area. I'm like, I, I want the best of all worlds. I want my bonsai area. I want my, my edibles and veggie garden stuff and then my native stuff. And there's, there's overlap, you mm-hmm. know, cause some, some bonsai are natives, right? Some natives are edible, some, and, and things like that. But, um, that's, that's maybe in a broader sense, my other medium is where I put plants and which ones I, I use. Yeah. And then how I design the benches to make it look interesting for me. You know? Yeah. After a while, it was like, my trees aren't inventory. I'm not selling them. Why do I have them all laid out on a bench? I want this to look like it, something cool to walk through. Yeah. In the relatively small 
small yard I have. So I guess, I guess that's my answer to that question, <laughs> but, but it's mainly trees and clay. Yeah. Yeah. What did you make? Stinging nettle beer? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I really kind of got into the, the foraging and, and useful weeds sort of thing. And um, yeah, nettles, nettles are extremely nu- nutritious <clears throat> weed that kind of grows everywhere. They make a, a, a nice tea that has some antihistamine mm-hmm. qualities. There are times when I be sneezing and have allergies and I would have some tea and it would calm it down a little. It's not a silver bullet, but it helps. It's used in, yeah, you can, the two times I made beer ever in my life was, 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 was with that based on those uh, recipes I was telling you from that forager guy. Right. Um, and, and you can ferment it and make a, 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 like a soil drench, um, liquid fertilizer type thing with it. Um, and then but, Mia hates it because if she brushes up against it, it, it accidentally she gets stung. Um, <laughs> I hate. She them. hates it, but I'm like, how can you hate this plant? It does so many great. Yeah, it hurts, but it does all these other cool things. And what's the uh, what's an abusive relationship? It, yeah, exactly. <laughs> what's the cure to stinging nettle? There's a plant that will neutralize it very easily. I'm oh, trying to um, think of. I think there's a root of something. There might be more than one. I can't. Well, it depends because there's the stinging nettle, the the annual one that that you know it, it stings you at first, but it, to me it goes away in a couple minutes. Uh-huh. But then there's like a what's like a called like a a giant a stream nettle or something. It's a bigger one and it comes back perennially. Uh-huh. It's bigger and it'll burn me for two days if I, if I brush up against it. Um, maybe you use cortisone or something. But yeah, there's plants that do it, but I can't I can't think of what it is. I'm trying to think around here because there's a lot of stinging nettle when you get out into the just the the right it, it's kind of a, a fringe plant that exists between a meadow and, and uh heavily forested un- yeah. understory it's always right on that cusp mm-hmm. and to get into the forest generally you've got to pass through stinging nettle mm-hmm. and and there's a plant that grows almost right next to stinging nettle always in the exact same fringe region of the mm. meadow to forest boundary that you can just rub on your arm and it completely neutralizes it and or, or, or on your whatever stung part of your body and i was i was trying to think of what that is anyways mm. do you do you explore other mediums mia um not cool. not more than I, I i wish i could i wish i had the time yeah well there's been some dabbling in, uh, in jewelry with some metal yeah. work mm-hmm. nice and, um, you know, some of like the knitting and crocheting type stuff. Yeah. But I have to say though, anybody who comes over to the house, I always, you know, it's, it's kind of the mic show because I've been doing a lot of ceramics, but, um, Mia has the f- fewer pieces cause she stopped a long time ago, but they're the best ones in the, in the no. house. They're, they're beautiful. <laughs> and I always go, those, those few are there are Mia's, the rest of this junk's mine, but like, look at Mia's stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Check that out. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting when you talk about intention and if you're like, here's everything in the entire world, make whatever you want. Some people thrive on that, but me, it's like, here are the parameters. Yeah. Here's the box. Yeah. Now go to town. And you're like, oh, yeah, okay, great. This is all I can do? Sure. Ricardo and I used to talk about that a lot. Obviously, Ricardo was the, the first filmmaker that, mm-hmm. start, you know, we started with uh, at Mariah Live, he came on a few months after we started the whole thing, and you know he went. He attended Rhode Island School of Design, and right has kind of been through the ranks of of artist and designer and and 
filmmaker and stuff. And he, we were in Italy and we're in Puglia and we're looking at the ancient olives and I'm like, ah, if we only had this, that or the other. And he's like, you know, I feel like that's a pitfall. You know, you could always have something better. You could always have a bigger budget. And you're just going to find things to spend it on, but it doesn't make it necessarily better. It's the creativity of the limitation. Yeah. yeah totally. That really, when you ha- don't have everything and you've got to do the best with what you've got, mm-hmm. sometimes that breeds the very best work. And ever ever since we kind of had that conversation and stuff, I have always looked at my uh, the projects differently. Because mm-hmm. I think inherently when you don't have it, if you can't go get it, then and you really want to do it, you're going to maximize yeah. and do the yeah. best with what yeah. you got. Um, and that, that I think consistently has become, has been a very welcoming constraint because it forces you to rethink how you use the things that you interpret as a limitation. And that's really the nuance to bonsai that makes, that makes it very special is you don't get to have more than what the tree's giving you. Yeah. It doesn't get more deadwood in the next, 10 to 15 years it doesn't have a bigger trunk in the next 10 to 12 years like what you got's what you got yeah. what are you going to do with it and i also think those limitations and how you creatively deal with them has a lot to do with how your own personal voice comes out mm. because you don't have every tool available to you like um, another, I'm going to go into ceramics again, but like an analogy is a lot of potters just have a handful of glazes they use and it's how they use them and how they combine them. And that's, that's their, that's their palette. It's limited, but how far can you go with those fewer things? Uh huh. You know? Yeah. And uh, I think that's, uh, yeah, that's how, why we don't all have things that look exactly the same. I think a lot of the time is you, you use what's in front of you. Have you ever been put in a position where you just had everything and you were just like, I'm not into this. Yeah, um, that's interesting. I don't think I've ever had everything, but I mean, or, when or, you have too many choices, it's hard to you make worse choices. It's not that great. <laughs> no, yeah. it's not that great. Just I totally agree with that. Yeah, it's almost Indis- like it's like, it's like give me give me a four or five, and I'll pick one. But I, you know, it's like what are what are we doing for dinner yeah. tonight? We have every kind of food within a five mile radius, and then you know, you you sit there and go, I don't know, what do you want? You know, it's it's all the choices, like yeah. What's easiest to get to or pick the few you like the best and go, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, 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 I've always wondered, like, when you see creative people, artists, actors, performers, musicians, I, I feel like music brings out this conversational, you sold yes. out, <laughs> quote unquote, sold out. And it's like being not mm. having the resources to afford endless time in a recording studio, not necess- being sort of raw in, yeah. and limited in the creation of that music creates a style and approach and a mentality. And then when all of a sudden you get big and money's no longer a limitation and the music loses its strife and its soul oh, yeah. and, its, and its edge... You know, yeah. it's is the concept of selling out, but it's almost like abundance lost the the the, the art lost its value. There totally. is a project. Uh, it was in Mississippi, and I think it was I can't remember if it was Vogue magazine. I think you'd find this fascinating. So um, there's a hotel. God, I can't remember the name of it right now. And uh, but they brought five artists, five musicians, um, to this space. 
And like in this room, these are the instruments. This is the piano. This is this, whatever is in here. The line is uh, somewhere in Mississippi. Like we'll see you in three days and every, every one of you create a different song. And then there's five songs based on the instruments in that room. They all wrote five different things, having the same line, wildly different songs, the instruments they chose, the style of the music they played. It's just like, holy crap. And just hearing those five things and knowing that was the challenge mm. is beautiful music. And it's the same way what goes back to is like to a tree. Like, do you ha- pick the best tree possible? Or like, what can Ryan Neal do with this? What can you do with like, and it goes back to my trees and starting out in Bones. I'd like, these are $25, $40 trees, 65. Like, how, what are those skills with just this? And, the, and then you go there. It, you hearing those songs, I love those songs. I, I'll, I'll send them to you. I would love that. See, but I think this is where bonsai, we we almost like just touch bonsai with like the tips of our fingers and we don't actually embrace the medium because it's motivating for me to think, don't try to make this in the way that you always make it. Make it with these constraints or criteria or intention and change the context with which you approach that work. And, and I think... We we don't we don't really use the medium of bonsai as a, as an art because that's using the medium of music as an art to now through that interpretation understand that person more or what they have to say better or get to that expanded dialogue and with with bonsai it's like okay there's a piece of material and you're going to make it in this way and they're going to make it in this way and and that's going to be a consistency but to be challenged with those is 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 kind of where i find myself gravitating in interest and one of those things talking about the public collections is i think it would be really effective for public collections to offer the opportunity for a tree that needs working like a tree with provenance that needs working offer a submission of concept and have bonsai professionals apply to do that work with provenance. Mm, you know, an interesting idea. It, uh, be, because it's like, if you're a public collection, you have these trees that you're responsible for taking care of. Now you need to get the ideas and concepts and make the best decision for what fits into the collection as far as a curator does justice to this piece in the history that you know of the artist that that you've been trusted to preserve and make sure that you maximize your investment in terms of the limited funds you can spend to have people come in and do the work on the trees that you need. That That's one sort of aspect of that coming from Australia that I really, uh, an idea that popped into my head while I was there. But, um, but using bonsai and going back to, can you in the educational system show how it began when it was young and then how, how it evolved and then how it got to mature and then how it got to ancient, mm-hmm. you know, utilizing material, challenging and tasking somebody with finding that material and going and exploring that thing as a medium, bonsai as a medium and a vehicle to create that dialogue or to create that timeline or to create that concept and capacity to educate, that's a huge challenge mm-hmm. that a professional should want or or some professionals might want, yeah. right? Uh, that would change the way they engaged with this thing that they've become so familiar with and have, have developed a profession around. I mean, that's badass. 
Yeah, that's bone size an art form. In yeah, my and mind. That, and, yeah, and, and even even that picture seen ancient, you're like, oh, I just changed the angle slightly, but seeing what it was before, and you're like, oh, duh, that makes sense. Don't you you don't know it's there, but you've made that like it's that whole succession of boom, 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 yeah. boom, boom. Did you see the dwarf Alberta spruce out there in the container yard? Mm-mm. Mm-mm. I, I mean, you probably wouldn't have looked at them because they look like generic shrubs i'm going to plant in the landscape but there's uh an entire line of dwarf alberta spruce i showed up at the nursery in scapoose you know like that that place is such a gold mine for bonsai material <laughs> honestly you never know what you're going to find there you just show up one day and there's there's just there's just goodness but i was walking through there there was nothing that spoke to me i was kind of circling back to my truck and I walked by, and there's literally, you know, rooted seedlings. Um, there's like a few, like six inch, a couple one gallon, some three gallon, five gallon, and ten gallon Alberta spruce, and they're all lined up. They're all <laughs> they're all lined up according to their size, which means youngest to oldest. Hmm. And I just sat there, and I was just looking at it, and I was just like, "What is the universe telling me mm-hmm. right now?" Except. Yeah. I need to buy all of these Alberta spruce. <laughs> I have the entire generational delineation. And yeah. who has ever seen an Alberta spruce seedling available for sale? Nobody. Because they have no value. Nobody wants an Alberta <laughs> spruce seedling. <laughs> Yet here is a flat of them. Here are all of these tiny, gradually getting bigger and older. This is like a bonsai person's dream to explore. <laughs> Exactly what you're saying, yeah. Kip. And they're sitting over in the. It's it's going to be a morale. Evolution of man. Yeah, evolution. It looked like that, right? It was like the, the, the from yeah from the you know primate boom, to Homo erectus. It was like that thing set up there. It's like the growth and evolution of an Alberta spruce. Yeah. It's just missing the bonsai at the end. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. Talk about a species unexplored, though. Have you ever done Alberta spruce? No. No. I don't think California's necessarily a, the best place for spruce, I'm thinking. But Alberta spruce is, I would say, a pretty universal landscape plant. It exists everywhere. Even in a... Well, do you think it would work in a Mediterranean climate? I mean, it needs that cold, right? No. No? Nope. Nope. Okay. No. Alberta spruce, I'm into. pretty... Sh- I'm- I'm pretty sure it exists. <laughs> well, like, like Colorado like spruce <laughs> is pretty limited, I think, as far as if you, you know, if you don't get a... I mean, there's a few around, but that's the general knowledge. I mean, maybe somebody out there is going, oh, I have, you know, I have those and that's no problem. But I mean, there's... I think Alberta spruce being a domesticate, it's like mugo pine. You know, mugo pine's an alpine plant, but it's if it's grown under domestication, there's mugo pines in Texas. Hmm. Yeah, there's mugo pines in... There's mugo pines in Southern California. Yeah, I've seen them in right? a few places in landscape. So I feel mm-hmm. like Alberta spruce is that domesticated, uh, domestically cultivated, adapt. It's it's domestically adapted. How's that? Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe that's in our minds. Then we just think of it as a, you know, a cold area mountain tree, and we yeah. don't try it or something. Yeah. Huh. The only thing I ever hear about Alberta spruce as a bonsai is that it 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 dies. That's what I that's mm-hmm. what I've got so far. 
Well, that's, that's your challenge. I, this, this is it, <laughs> right? I, but I've got a student who's like, man, I've had the exact opposite experience. And he brought in this Alberta spruce that he's been working on for like 30 years. And he's like, this is my first bonsai tree. Oh, wow. I just mangled the shit out of this tree <laughs> and I cannot kill it. It will not die. Where does he live? Uh, he lives up in Washington. Okay. But <laughs> I was just like, well, that's the first Alberta Spruce success story, let alone abuse story that I've ever <laughs> heard where it's like had success. I'm really curious to dig into this, this, uh, reputation filled tree. Mm-hmm. Danny, how was your morning? Oh, pretty good. I yeah. Was, I was tired last night. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, I knocked out pretty hard. The uh, quantity of meat, I put all that meat away and I was like, the quantity of meat that was consumed by a very small party of people last night was very impressive. (laughs) Was there two, four, six of us? Yeah, Yeah. there were six of us, but two vegetarians that humored us in their consumption of meat. So the four of us really Basically, there were four hardcore meat eaters that took it to the house. Yeah. By the way, did that impact your stomach? No. I mean, I don't really feel any different. And I didn't want to think about it too much because if I think too much about what my stomach's doing, it'll start doing stuff. You can will it. (laughs) You know, there's more nerves there than in the brain, I guess. But Mm -hmm. um, yeah, no, I I feel fine. And and plus, I kind of layered my eating. I'm like, all right, I'm going to eat some pork. Then I'm going to go eat some of the slaw and some of the vegetables. I'm going to eat some pork again. And, you know, in my mind, that makes some sense. So I guess it worked. I don't know. Which makes me come up to this because let's, I want to work on some trees, uh-huh. but I would like to, this is, I came in this morning and said, do you dream about bonsai? That was my question. And like, like we were here for three, four or five days straight. And you're just like, every time I'm here, I like, I go to bed about thinking about bonsai. I dream about bonsai, I wake up and it's just like in my face. I would be curious from your perspective of your dreams about bonsai or is there like a nightmare that you have? You're like a bonsai nightmare craziness. Like you're immersed and you just wake up and you're like, oh, thank God that did not happen. Mm. Bonsai. I'm sure I've had a bonsai nightmare at some point. I don't have like a, my recurring nightmare is definitively anxiety based in a similar recurring nightmare that a lot of people have when they have anxiety nightmares. And that is I've signed up for too many college courses I'm not getting to the class that I need to get to to learn what I need to learn, but I have to pass it to graduate. I don't even know where it is. It's like I'm just totally forgetting about it, but I know that it's there. And why am I in my underwear at school? That's yours. <laughs> is that just me? Uh, <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, that, that's my only anxiety dream. But I dream about bonsai. When I was at, uh, when it used to be the Nolanders Trophy in Belgium, one of my really good students back in the day, Michael Fiducia, was with me. And uh, he, we went to bed, woke up the next morning. I had We had done one demonstration. We had another demonstration. So we had done a demonstration on Saturday, going to bed Saturday night. He said, uh, dude, you sat straight up in bed and started uh, basically miming... <laughs> the wiring process (laughs) and then you laid back down and covered yourself back up and went went to sleep nice i don't remember that i don't know he's just like you just sat up in bed and you had one hand holding the branch and the other hand was coiling wire and you did that about three times and then you laid back down 
That's funny. <laughs> so, my, uh, holy cow. <laughs> my younger brother, when he first came to uh, the L.A. area, he was learning air conditioning refrigeration. He had very long days, you know, 16, 18-hour days in the summertime. And he was staying up in the loft. And uh, he got up one night and he took the ceiling fan apart <laughs> and went back to bed. <laughs> <laughs> he was just like, must, yeah, he was just, must do it. Yeah, get it done. See, but that's high level of motor. I mean, I, I you know, I said. That's I, muscle I, memory. I, I, yeah. I think it's yeah. another level of thinking. Yeah. You know, I think maybe it might have something to do with that anxiety, but um, I think it's 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 just reaching into your sleep. Mm. Yeah, all the sleep science around yeah. how certain parts of your brain sh- slow down, but certain parts of your brain speed up while you're sleeping. And uh, in fact, that's when all of the skills that you've rehearsed over the day are actually broken down and like organized and computed Mm. in your mind. Mm. So it makes sense that there would be some carryover of ac- activity, but I dream about bonsai. I mean, I pretty much think about bonsai 24/7. I know, that's, that's why pretty, I wondered what your dreams yeah, would be. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty constant for me. Sometimes a little too much. Right. Yeah. I find it'll help me go to sleep or I'll be thinking about my next shelf design or something uh-huh. and putting things together and that will help me go to sleep. Yeah. Um, but I don't think I don't remember most of my dreams. So I couldn't speak to that. When I do, it's unfortunate because then it's some type of anxiety dream and yeah, it's right. some crazy thing. But um, I, I probably dream about it and just don't remember it. But I am thinking about it 24 hours a day when I'm, or at least when I'm awake. Do you, do you think that you're thinking about the, the concept itself or the creative endeavor, the act of, like, what is... When I when when you guys say you love bonsai, what is the appeal? What is the addiction? What is the the drug that makes you do bonsai? Because let's just be honest, horticulturally, it's completely asinine uh, in terms of your life and just everything else you could be doing with your time. We're playing with tiny trees, you know. Like it doesn't make a lot of sense, but it has so much value. What is the hook that keeps you guys? in it that's an interesting question i think it's it's complicated but it taps into i think a very basic so like i think on our first day of class in juniper's one you were like what are your earliest memories and the point was we all have very early memories of trees Mm -hmm. and i totally agree with that and um we either, even if you grew up in suburbia, you, there, there are trees around and you maybe you had fruit trees in your yard or whatever. We all have these memories. And it's also a very, I think it's in our DNA. I mean, we kind of came from living in trees, I think, essentially. And it's somehow it's, that's, I think it's, it's tapping into that. Like I'm making this ideal, beautiful tree thing that's part of life. Um, and then on a very basic level, but then my mind goes off into, well, what other things can you do with this? You know, what other creative ideas are there? Is, is this tree in this pot the best thing? You know, it's like, then you can kind of go from there and then I can get lost in those thoughts. Like what other artistic, and then I'm trying to make some of those things happen maybe. But, um, I think there's a very basic level to it. Kind of like ceramics being this ancient human thing. It taps into a very basic mm-hmm. thing in the back mm-hmm. of my mind, in our DNA. That's, mm-hmm. that's what I think it is. Interesting. What's the hook for you, Danny? Um, I don't, it's a hard one. 
it started as a, like a stress reliever and, you know, obviously a lot of failures when you start. And I think, you know, success and failure comes into it at some point. You want to be successful. You know, you want to be able to torture the tree and, and still make it live because um, essentially that's what we're doing. We're torturing them, um, putting them into smaller pots and, you know, hopefully you can take care of them. But I mean, over time, you just, you, you learn to appreciate them, um, especially with the successes, uh, you know, opposed to the failures and, you know, uh, nature is going to throw you some failures, you know, you yeah. know that. And, uh, you know, it's kind of heart wrenching when you had something for 15 years or longer and, you know, it gets desiccated in the freezing cold and, you know, there's nothing you can do. It's gone. Yep. So, yeah, I, I think you just, over time, you know, you wanted, you, you know, especially learning the horticulture here um, and seeing what the trees can do, uh, just having that knowledge mm-hmm. in your pocket um, and watching them expand. And I mean, I'm just, I'm falling in love with my trees all over again. Yeah. Just on another level. Yeah. Um, you know, and you just, you just keep going down that road, I think. What about you, Kip? What's the hook? It's it's twofold. It's it's the obvious where you are the ability to grow something and keep it alive, that horticultural aspect. And then there's the aspect of creating something. Like in that just concrete, I kept it alive, I created something, I've used my hands, I win, I succeed, great. But it really comes down from an internal perspective. It slows me down. Hmm. The trees that speak to me when I went to the National Art Museum and, it, and it, when it makes me stop and my life slows down and internally I slow down and just take a minute to breathe and just say, wow, hmm. that tree made me think. I, that serenity, that letting go by looking at a tree. And I think those are the trees I like to create and whatever, and that's probably different for everybody, but it's like creating those trees and keeping those in my collection, that tree makes me feel that way. That's what I, that feeling here. Uh, Yeah, man, looking at those, like the trees we've already done, just those two, I was like, (sighs) it's like yoga, like it's, it's yoga. Mental I love it. yoga. But really, my favorite part of yoga is the f- three to five minutes afterwards, where you just lay down, and you let it all sink in, and then you just say Namaste, and you're like, Whew. Yeah, that's you do all that to get to that point, mm-hmm. and that's to me. But like seeing a tree, like the tree at, at Randy's yesterday, that tree just I saw it and it spoke, and you're like, Whoa! It made me think. Mm. Oh, I've never thought about that. You do all of that just to get to the tail end. I've never really thought about that. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yoga is kind of like that, huh? Right. You know, it's good for you. It's, it's like, well, it's like running. <laughs> you do all that stuff. And at the end, you're like, oh, I am feel so much better than I did 45 minutes ago. 20 minutes. 20 minutes. 20 minutes. Depending on how far you run. I don't, uh, I don't want to go back to the running <laughs> don't go back to the conversation. Running. <laughs> I feel like we really 
yeah. feel like we, thought, we, really we ran around in circles in that. I feel one. like we really those had shoes are going back. That one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but yeah, in the sense of that, you know that here we go, and like, ah, oh. huh. yeah, it's got it's it, it it does have a hook. It make it makes me feel more a more open, more vulnerable, more present person looking at a styled tree. And then here's the part that I don't think, well, at least I've noticing, but living in Bend, when we go out on a hike, man, I more aware, more aware of the trees and the life around me and just noticing things. And it's just, that's, that's the big mechanism in my mind. Right. uh, Oh yeah. It's its ability to raise people's and open their eyes. Oh yeah. You wake Mm -hmm. up in the morning and go, what's the weather today? How does it affect my trees? Mm -hmm. Yep. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) look, Just the fact that that you have to understand weather patterns Mm -hmm. and know of seasonal changes just to take care of your little trees. You have to know more than we would typically pay attention to as everyday citizens of the built environment. The built environment protecting you from keeping you warm, keeping you cool, keeping you fed, keeping you dry, right? You don't have to know about weather anymore, yet with bonsai you do. It's like yeah. such such an such an awesome thing and shitty that we're driving the covered rag- wagon across the country when it's <laughs> going to be blizzarding. But um, it's going to be a know, challenge. I wouldn't have known it was going to be in the low teens in Wyoming and Nebraska. <laughs> Were I not involved in bonsai? <laughs> yeah, and I and I listened to you guys work out the um, temperature issue with the truck last night. You th- you're like, oh shit, are we? Should we even do this? And then you thought through it, and we can do this. That's the boom, and you kind of have your answer. Mm-hmm. So it was like you had to engineer that idea of how to deal with weather. Most people don't. That is why bonsai got its hooks into me. Yeah, I was going to ask you to answer your own question on that problem solving. The act of problem solving is why I do bonsai. Because every tree has a new problem to be solved with different constraints that force you to think harder. And there's never, there are similarities, but there's never the same. Mm -hmm. And there's opportunities to creatively explore those constraints and push those constraints and test those constraints. And there's techniques you can create. And there's ways that we can analyze those constraints. And there's ways that we can bend those constraints and think about them in a, from an angle they've never been thought of before. And, and I think like Mirai in general, that's what's bred Mirai, is this idea of, of playing with constraints. Like... I don't have the money to buy a facility. So that created the constraint of needing to build and make it with my bare hands. And I don't know how to make a facility. So that created the constraint of like, go educate yourself on each individual uh, aspect of it. And then, you know, the overwhelming notion of creating something of this scale and, you know, to the point now where it's like, having done all that, this greenhouse and the design. And it's, I'm excited for the greenhouse because it's just a, it's just a new way to approach a constraint. And like talking with you guys about the floor yesterday, Mm -hmm. it's like, what floor are we going to use with the materials available and the budget that exists? What are your ideas go? You know, and it's like, I think we came up with something pretty good. Mm -hmm. So like the covered wagon 
naturally I don't want to address the constraints or the the potential impact of trying to drive the covered wagon across a massive cold front blowing across North America, but it's probably going to lead to the discovery of something. And already we've talked about new solutions for insulating an <laughs> insulated truck. <laughs> that, I love that go. shit. I love yeah. that shit. I like the problem-solving process. I like Troy being on the phone, kicking out ideas. <laughs> Lime kicking out ideas. We're looking at things. We're thinking about the best way. Like, If I didn't have that, I wouldn't do bonsai. And then next year when you do the cover wagon, you'll you'll tweak the idea even further if you have to. Yep. Improve it even more. Yep. Based bouncing off this this year. And how f- but how fun is that too to come up with an idea and be engaged in a way where you have to put it to the test. Here are the constraints. Here's the way that I think I've worked through the best way to solve it. Let's see. Wow, that broke in half. That was not the best way to solve it. <laughs> Next time, we're going to have to find a different methodology. But you don't ever get that exact same situation back. Nope. So the next time, if you try to approach it the same way, it's not going to be the exact same set of constraints. It's like it's almost like this uh, masochistic uh, <laughs> oh, desire, yeah. you, you know, necessity to explore. Because it's like, oh... It broke. I want it back. Yeah. I want to do mm, that do it again. again. <laughs> I want to do it again. Give me another one. There isn't another one. That was the only tree that that set of constraints. So then it demands like this honed, sharpened blade of techniques and analysis and ability to right then and there for that very specific purpose, find the best way. It's freaking awesome. Mm. If that, like didn't, that, too. If that yeah. didn't exist, I wouldn't do bonsai like that too yeah. the challenge mm-hmm. of failure yeah. yeah yeah it's all problem solving totally just like how we were like you know I've never had a huge collection of trees to have a huge sample size to figure out problems with but I've have some time and I have consistencies in certain things and like we were talking about water and I'm like why do I keep getting this die back why do these certain species keep going I can only lighten up my soil mix so much to where it's no longer that it's holding too much water or something yeah maybe there's something wrong with my water mm-hmm. let me test that well the pH is nine that's not good you know let me at least adjust that and, and then go from there so yeah and, and if it works it's very satisfying like okay I got that yeah. Right. yeah. Yeah, totally. Right. <laughs> but the, 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 the funny thing is, is the challenges are never going to stop, stop coming. Like 10 years at Mariah, oh, yeah. it hasn't gotten any easier. Mm-hmm. Hasn't gotten any easier. And any design of a tree when we go back to today, like, or yesterday, uh, cleaning is my favorite part because you just unlock the mystery of the tree, right? <laughs> totally, like, right. Oh, that branch does that. Oh, okay. I see. Oh, I see that. Oh, okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then you just, it's like you're finding little clues of where we should go. Yeah. What's happening here? Exploring. Exploring it. That's the favorite part of of getting a new tree is like just cleaning it. Interesting. Yeah. So much discovery found in that little section of work. Yeah. 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 That juniper that I pulled in, I mean, I've looked at that for three years. Sierra. Yeah. uh, No, the Rocky Mountain that that, uh, with the deadwood. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like I've been looking at it for three years, and all of a sudden, until you put your hands on it, you just don't know. Mm -hmm. You don't know anything. You just you 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 know the uh, perception of the tree. I think that's really fascinating. Intimacy. Yeah. Now I know it. 
<laughs> Let's go work on some trees. Let's go work on some trees.